In this episode, as we close out our fifth episode of considering the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us, I want you to imagine two points on a continuum, two historical moments almost exactly 30 years apart. And I want us to land on the exact scene, the exact moment when the promises of the first one began finding their fulfillment in the activities to come of the second. So first, the first. Jesus is walking along a stretch of coastal road on the west shoreline of the Galilee, heading northward from one of the small towns up toward Bethsaida. It is the early part of the evening. The sun is just preparing to set over the hills to their left. Behind him and the disciples are numberless crowds of people, near nearly the whole population of that western side of the sea. They follow closely in his wake. Why? Well, in the last week, for instance, here's been a list of everything that's happened. All these crowds of people have seen and experienced for themselves. A paralyzed man, let down through a hole torn in a roof, healed by Jesus, and now part of the crowd, walking. One of his own 12 disciples, a man formerly engaged in the act of thievery known as tax collecting, walking with Jesus, done with his old life. Jairus, the synagogue leader at Capernaum, a man whose daughter had died of a fever, also walking in the crowds, and her with him. A woman with a severe condition of hemorrhaging, who happened to grab his cloak with a wild belief in her head and heart, also now in the crowds, set free. Uh, two blind men who heard news that he was coming and started shouting out for a healing. Well, you get the idea. Jesus is now approaching a fork in the road. That right fork will follow the curvature of the seashore and head north-northeast. The left grows narrower and heads up into the hills. He turns on his heel, looks back over the faces of the crowds. There's a gentle smile on his lips. Everyone slows down, stops. Then quietly, just so his disciples can hear his words, he then says, again, just to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Let's ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. And with that, he motions for the crowds to stay where they are, to camp out along the roadsides here, and then takes his disciples up that road to the left. They will spend the night over the nearest foothill. Well, in the morning, the twelve awake to find Jesus already up, tending to a fire. It's clear he's been awake for quite some time now. The first few wake up the others, and then they circle around him closely, and they enjoy the warmth of the flames. There is an intensity in the gaze of Jesus upon them. They would be right if they assumed he'd been talking to the Father since very early. 
He then says, I'm sending you out now, two by two, to take the message of the kingdom as far as you can take it. Listen, here's what I want. Don't go yet to any Gentiles or to the Samaritans. Right now, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. Tell them, the kingdom has arrived. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons. As freely as I have given it to you, give it away. He continues in this vein for another minute or two and then says something that I imagine struck them quite interestedly. He says to them, Because of me, you will be brought before governors or kings, uh, before Gentiles, to act as witnesses. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. It will be given you in that hour what to say. For it will not be you speaking to them, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. None of these men has ever even seen a governor or king, very few even a Gentile. So one can imagine the way these words must have struck them. One can imagine the way they listened to his words about this particular work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, that's our first scene. Here's the second. 30 years later, a man who none of those men knew, in fact, at the time of that earlier scene, he was a spiritual enemy, that man, one Paul of Tarsus, is woken early in the morning by his assigned guards told to get himself dressed, ready, presentable, because this is the day. This is the morning when this man, Paul, formerly known as Saul, formerly a Pharisee and really an enemy of Jesus, today is the day he will stand before the Caesar, Nero, the Gentile ruler of the whole Roman Empire. And Paul, having never met Jesus in the flesh, yet having really been a citizen of his kingdom since a certain journey unto Damascus, prepares to go as personal envoy between the kingdom of heaven and that empire of Rome. He's not worried about what to say or how to say it. It will be given him in this hour what he is to say. For it will not be Paul speaking to Caesar. It will be the spirit of his father speaking through him in the power of Jesus. Can you see those two, my friends, those two points on a continuum, like a departure and a destination, a promise and a fulfillment. But how do we get from here to there? How do a group of isolated Jewish men end up somehow preaching to the highest Gentile ruler? In essence, how did the early church go from an obscure lakeshore in Galilee to standing before the Caesar in Rome? Well, as briefly as I can, I want to take you on a historical journey from that second point backwards. How had Paul ended up in Rome? Rome. 
Acts 21. We, meaning Paul and his entourage, sailed away from Tyre and arrived at Ptolemais. We greeted the brothers there and stayed with them for just one day. On the following day we left and proceeded to Caesarea, and there we went to stay at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven deacons. He had four unmarried daughters, all of whom spoke by the Spirit of God. During our stay there of several days, a prophet by the name of Agabus came down from Judea. When he came to see us, he took Paul's girdle and used it to tie his own hands and feet together, saying, The Holy Spirit says this, The man to whom this girdle belongs will be bound like this by the Jews in Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles. After which, yes, Paul had gone to Jerusalem, tried to fit in with religious custom there, but then was, yes, again, arrested, sent to trial in Caesarea, where he eventually appealed to Caesar and was shipped off, including a shipwreck, to Rome. Friends, the Holy Spirit had sent him to Jerusalem and then to Rome. But what had brought him to the house of Philip the Evangelist? Acts 20. At Miletus, he sent, Paul sent to Ephesus to summon the elders of the church. On their arrival, he addressed them in these words. Here I am, compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I do not know what may happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit warns me that imprisonment and persecution await me in every city that I visit. But frankly, I do not consider my own life valuable to me so long as I can finish my course and complete the ministry which the Lord Jesus has given me in declaring the good news of the grace of God. Friends, it was the Holy Spirit who had brought him to Miletus and was then going to send him on toward Jerusalem. But what had brought him to Miletus? Acts 19. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul journeyed through the upper parts of the country and arrived at Ephesus. There he discovered some disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they replied. We have never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. When these men heard Paul explain that Holy Spirit, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak with tongues and the inspiration of prophets. So, friends, it was the Holy Spirit that had kept him at Ephesus for two years after that moment, and then had sent him on to Miletus, then to Jerusalem, then to Rome. But what had gotten him so many years before to start moving in the eventual direction of Ephesus? Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch, both prophets and teachers, Barnabas, for example, Simeon, surnamed Niger, Lucius, the Cyrenian, Minaean, the foster brother of the governor Herod, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke to them, saying, Set Barnabas and Saul apart for me 
for a task to which I have called them. At this, after further fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and set them free for this work. So these two, sent at the Holy Spirit's command, went down to Seleucia and from there sailed off to Cyprus. Friends, it was the Holy Spirit who had started the very first of the worldwide missionary journeys, the Holy Spirit who had been directly directing Paul's steps. But here a question is still begged. How had those disciples there in the Galilee received the word that it was time to go to the Gentiles, to go, uh, let's say, from that position that was sort of uh, locationally and religiously obscure to get to the Caesar? How? Well, now I want you to listen to Simon Peter, one of the 12 men there on the day of that first scene, as he explains how it happened. Acts 11. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and while completely unconscious of my surroundings, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet coming down toward me, let down from heaven by its four corners. It came right down to me, and when I looked at it closely, I saw animals and wild beasts, reptiles and birds. Then I heard a voice say to me, Get up, Peter, kill, eat. But I said, Never, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever passed my lips. But the voice from heaven spoke a second time and said, You must not call what God has cleansed common. This happened three times. Then the whole thing was drawn up again into heaven. The extraordinary thing is that at that very moment, three men arrived at the house where we were staying, sent to me personally from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with these men without any misgiving. Later, while I was beginning to tell Cornelius and his Gentile friends the message of Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as on us at the beginning. There came into my mind the words of our Lord when he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> my friends, on the day when Jesus envisioned his friends standing before the Gentile ruler of the world, speaking of the realities of the kingdom of heaven, he knew full well that it would take the Holy Spirit sending his servant Paul to Rome, before which the Holy Spirit had sent that man to Jerusalem, before which the Holy Spirit had revealed his presence powerfully in Ephesus, before which the Holy Spirit had sent out apostles to all the world, before which the Holy Spirit had begun grabbing the hearts of Gentiles everywhere, before which the Holy Spirit, at the personal behest of Jesus, had been sent to one of Jesus' best friends on a random rooftop, in a random city, on a random day, during the very random hour of the hot noonday. My friends, what I'm trying to say is this. You and I have absolutely no idea how powerful and glorious is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if you've even begun to reckon with this wonderful truth, that the exact place of the movements of the Holy Spirit for your own good and for the good of the whole world starts in the intimacy of your 
personal abiding in Jesus. If Peter hadn't gone to spend that noonday on the rooftop in Joppa, Paul doesn't eventually stand before Caesar with the name of Jesus on his lips. Peter's intimacy is the breakthrough. Peter's time with Jesus connects those two points on the continuum. My brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is looking for hearts in which to have his way. Absolutely nothing has changed. Is your heart one of those hearts? Thank you for listening.